Thank you so much for joining the Dear Katie podcast. Again, this is Katie Kessner. I am the woman who was on the cover of Time Magazine at age 18, the first in the world in history to speak out nationally and publicly as the victim of date rape. I've taken my story, my journey to 5,000 different locations around the world and continue to empower survivors through our podcast. I'm so pleased that my co-host is Claire Kaplan. Claire, can you share a little bit about you? Sure. Thank you, Katie. Um, I am uh, joining the podcast for many years as an advocate and a survivor supporter, uh, both in nonprofit organizations and in higher education. I want to remind our listeners also that sometimes the discussions in our podcast can be difficult to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. So we encourage all of you to take care for your safety and well-being. Reach out for emotional support from family or friends or a counselor, if you have one, or a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll share that address with you at the end of the podcast. Thanks so much, Claire. And we are so pleased and honored to have Donna Cass with us. Um, Donna, you have a bio that um, I'm sure many would love to hear about, but I'd like to hear from you in your own words. Who are you, where do you stand, and what brings you to our, our mic tonight? I am Donna Kaz, and I'm very excited to be here with you both. I am an author and a survivor of domestic violence and sexual assault. I'm an activist and a feminist and a member of Gorilla Girls on Tour as the Gorilla Girl Afro Ben. And I'm coming to you from Long Island. I love that, Donna. And, you know, honored all the things you just listed. And let's talk first. You know, we always entreat our our survivors to share one moment of how their victimization and what that meant to them and what age and place and stage and what, where were you when that first happened to you? I was sexually assaulted in a college and I studied theater. I moved to New York trying to pursue a career in the arts, in theater. And within one month of moving there, I met the actor William Hurt. And we started a relationship that was full of violence. Our our relationship was three plus years. I was with him for three years. And then for the next 10, we continued a relationship, even though we weren't technically together. What For a lot of our listeners, Donna, you and I, and all of us on the screen, we're of a certain age. And when you say we're not technically together, like I just spoke earlier today to high school kids and they're technically together meant like, did I text you? Did I message you? Did I hook up with you for one hour or five minutes? Like, was I a friends with benefits? So just give context of what that meant to you at the time in current day. Okay. So we're talking about the late seventies and the early eighties and we were dating. We lived together. We uh, were a couple, an official couple, and we broke up. But after we broke up, we stayed in touch. And I was still very addicted to this horrible relationship. 
and I held out hopes for almost 10 years that we would get back together, that the relationship would be fixed somehow. So I would hear from him once in a once or twice a year, and we would see each other. In um, I, now, I'm not really sure about the date of this in the late '80s. Maybe Claire, you know this. When was Nicole Brown Simpson murdered? I can tell you because I was on the um, Donna. Believe it or not, I was on the Mall when she was honored at the March and Rally. I was the youngest keynote speaker at her honorarium death at that exact rally the indigo girls were there i'm just gonna tell you i wrote my speech at 21 years old on the subway to my speech um and i can tell you that was 1995 so what what happened to me was at, at towards the end of this third this 13 year relationship i decided that i needed to do i was living in la i decided i needed to to do some volunteer work. And I thought that I randomly opened up the phone book. We had phone books in those days and looked up the LA Commission on Assaults Against Women and decided to go for their training to the uh, LA Rape and Battery Hotline. I signed up for the training. I went for the first session and everyone went around the room and introduced themselves. Everyone was saying, my name is so-and-so, I'm a survivor. My name is so-and-so, I'm a survivor. And I kept hearing the word survivor, survivor, survivor. And that was the first time that uh, it hit me that I actually had survived domestic violence. Donna, I think the connectivity to that word and your experience will help so many of our survivors listening to you. What helped you say the noun and my experience were connective? I think it was the other women in the room and seeing so many women that were also identifying as survivor. Did you, but may, 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 may I clarify, did you have to, some of our survivors listening to our podcast have ho- actually like minutia justified what act exactly happened that qualified them as survivor. Yeah. I think that what I should I think that what I should say is that prior to that, I downplayed it and I bought into all the myths. It was not that bad. Uh, this only happens to people from low socioeconomic status. Uh, this only happens to people who are alcoholics or drug addicts. This can be fixed easily with a couple of anger management classes. So I'm not a survivor because it wasn't that bad. I only went to the emergency room once. I mean, I actually said that in my head. And I I downplayed it and I didn't want to believe it. It was shameful. It was embarrassing and it was awful. But when I heard other people embrace it, and they obviously had embraced it with vigor and strength and empowerment, they did not shy away from saying the word survivor. That hit me as something that I was as well and I could do. So that was the first time I realized that the the things I had gone through in my life had not been great and had been violent and, and a criminal and I had survived them. Donna, you know, our interview t- today has been so accessible 
and you know resonant with all the people on our podcast. And I, I think one thing if you could talk about how you have courage to leave or survive and what that meant to you, especially if you could enumerate, you know, they're going to resonate with you because you're, you know, a little bit famous, like all of us, you know, we, we look up to those who've accomplished something we've not, and those who've been on more screens than we have in this very screen centric world. And you've had, you know, through your partner that, also conjoined experience. If you don't mind, I think that would be really helpful and then we can dig in on that. Do you mind talking about that? Right. And that's something else that people don't realize is that leaving or talking of leaving is the most fatal time in a violent relationship. That's when it, we're talking about heterosexual couples here with women and men. Talking about my That's when the, people are husband. killed. Um, and, or same-sex couples. That's when people are murdered. Not when they're in the relationship and staying. It's when they try to leave or they leave because oh, the person's okay. lost their power and they they have to regain their power back. Right. You know, it's funny that we, we're talking about I, um, the hotline because I actually met my husband through the hotline only because he was the neighbor of my partner on the line, the woman that I used to work on the line with, because as you know, Claire, you always work with a partner on the line. And the woman I used to take calls with on the line had this next door neighbor who she introduced me to and we ended up getting married. His name was Richard. He's a fabulous, wonderful, supportive husband that I had for uh, almost 30 years. And unfortunately he recently passed away. Um, but I just want to you know, pay tribute to him and say that Part of the reason why I was able to gather strength was having a partner who was very supportive of my journey and my telling my story. I decided to tell my story. I mean, I, I, I identified as a survivor in that moment of volunteering for the hotline and hearing all of those uh, women express their stories. And I thought about my own, which came out little by little. Um, I did the interviews when Nicole Brown Simpson was was murdered. I didn't disclose who my batterer was. It took me many, many years, but I think that disclosure is a process and everyone comes to their story in a different way. People either tell their stories or they don't, which is also really fine as well, um, but it is a process. And mine was very slow. I ended up becoming a guerrilla girl and a feminist activist fighting for women's rights and talking about discrimination in the arts, talking about violence against women, talking about reproductive rights. And I one day I sat down and I said, how did I get here? How did I become this radical feminist, guerrilla masks wearing activist from where I started as this meek college girl uh, who was raped by a college professor and then went on to get involved with a violent man for almost 13 years. So that jump from that to activist was an interesting journey to me. And that's why I decided to write it down and tell my story, because I think that the two are connected. Um, if you could step back for one second, because a lot of people know nothing about the Gorilla Girls. I mean, 
I do, but but a lot of people don't. And I think people would love to hear about about that group. The Gorilla Girls started in nineteen in the late eighties. Um, they were a group of women. They were visual artists in New York City who were sick at the lack of women artists in solo shows and museums, in group shows, in the uh, biennials. And they decided to get together and do something about it. And what they ended up doing is they ended up making posters that were both humorous and also blatantly stated the, the facts about women artists. For example, one of their most famous posters says, do women have to get naked to get into the Met Museum? And the stat is something like 90% of the, of, the, of the paintings in the Met Museum are of naked women, but only 3% of them are actually painted by women. So they put these posters up in Soho, which was the heart of the art world at that time in the middle of the night. And this is when you could plaster posters, when there was space to put posters on mailboxes and on on gates and things like that. And they signed them the, the Gorilla Girls. And pe- they got a lot of interest. People wanted to know, who are these women? So the press called and the Gorilla Girls said, well, we can't reveal our identities because we don't want anyone to blacklist us now for fighting for our rights. Let's all take the names of dead women artists. And they said to one of the girls, go out and get some gorilla disguises. This, this is an actual story. The okay. woman, the gorilla girl who went out to get the disguises was a very bad speller. And instead of spelling gorilla, G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A, she thought it was gorilla. And she came back with these gorilla masks which really seemed to fit because they were humorous, <laughs> funny. I'm laughing. That's so, that's perfect, Donna. That's yes. Perfect. And so it ended up that we wear gorilla masks to conceal our true identities. And then we all took the names of dead woman artists. And I, I became Afro-Ben. I joined the girls in the late nineties and uh, went on to bring the girls into protesting discrimination in the performing arts, specifically in theater and New York City theaters. We did a very successful sticker campaign where we went into big theaters like the Roundabout Theater um, and we went into the toilet stalls and we put stickers up on the toilet stalls that said, in this theater, the taking of photographs, the use of a recording device and the production of plays by women is strictly prohibited, the management. And underneath it would say, this theater is not producing any plays by women in this season. Oh, my God, Donna, that's so cool. And and I only mentioned the roundabout because the roundabout was and still sort of is uh, one, one, a theater in New York that doesn't really produce a lot of plays by women. So we would sticker them and then we would go back 30 days later and we would see where they had tried to peel the stickers off and just a hint. For all everyone listening here, Avery labels are really hard to remove. That's <laughs> perfect. perfect. Good. And they're so easy we, to come by. We would put more stickers up. And lo and behold, the roundabout announced their next season and would include two plays by women. So we took complete credit for that. Thing. You should. You should, Donna. That's, of course, unfortunately, yeah. for the next season, they went back to producing all plays by white men. But, you know, it's gotten... This was this was not a, people did not want to talk about discrimination in theater. Everyone thinks the arts are so liberal. Every, the, the arts are inclusive, liberal, but really that is not 
the truth. And the theater has definitely gotten better since we started doing this in the late 90s. And there are all these initiatives. There are women in theater. There are There is the LA Women Playwrights Initiative. There are a lot of organizations putting focus on this issue and not letting people get away with just producing plays by white men. Um, Clara, I have a couple more questions, but Donna, let me just tell you. So I sit exactly with you in the 90s. Here's me. Here's my equivalent of what you just said. I took rubber stamp cement and pink cardboard and put it on the professors at my college. And I said, you are um, objectifying or harassing women at 3 a.m. Great. That was exactly what you were doing. Yes. I was rogue. And, and and the other thing, I loved the part where you were picketing because I I was picketing fraternities and I was a volunteer overnight on the line. And here's what I did just to cajole your soul. I almost got arrested because I was on the hotline and how many women would call me about these fraternity men assaulting women. So I made, because I had no money, I literally... Chris pressed them out for five cents per copy and handed them out outside the fraternities the next Saturday night after my doing overnight duty on the hotline. I stood outside Claire, the fraternity that was the most named on the hotline over the last week. And I got arrested. I she threatened to the police officer said you do not have permission to picket and poster outside this fraternity. So I got permission and I the, the flyer I sent out because I was by myself, Donna. I had no friends, no family. I was just there handing them out. And I said, do you really want to party at this frat? After I personally, someone, I said, someone heard five victims report rapes at this house where you're going to walk into tonight. Yep. I did. This, you know, this all this reminds me also of something else. There was a lot of this going on during this period of time and this sort of, um, uh, well, protest, but creative protest. I'm thinking of what was happening in LA. Um, a couple of things, there was an organization, well, a group of women who were, um, defacing billboards for films in particular in particular the one that was so fine do you remember that film so fine with um um and the the image was the backside of a woman in the, the what was so fine was they made blue jeans with clear butts out of plastic and and i knew who the women were they they spray painted it was the giant billboard at warner brothers which is a three-sided billboard right huge huge size of a building and they wrote you can see her ass. Where's your meat? You know, you sexist fucking pig, right? And uh, oh, wow. fast forward maybe one or two years, I was working in the PR department of Warner Brothers, and I heard about this. Someone told me, you know, this happened. These women, you know, because they knew I was a hotline volunteer. They said the little man, the little Jewish man who had designed that whole thing, it crushed him that this happened and that he would be accused of being a sexist. It was just so funny. I said, oh really? I said, hmm. <laughs> Because I knew who did it, but and they also there were a lot of um, horrible video games then, 
beat them and eat them and Custer's Revenge where they were raping women. And so they would they would tag the buildings where it was being manufactured. It's really interesting how all this was happening. Yeah, at that and time. also as you bring up a good point about using humor. Humor is a really good weapon because you, if you can make people laugh, you get their attention. And then you put your message across. So that's really important. Well said, Donna. Well said, Donna. This is, a, I feel like all of us are like, not just podcasting, but like sniffing out the generation of change. But I think we're, we're activists and we're feminists and we're also sensitive of what will work and will not work. I, th- I, I say that to all three of us. We're sensitive. We all want to change and we also want to know what will resonate with the most people. I tried when I wrote my memoir, Unmasked, about my relationship with him and how I got to become a gorilla girl. The thing that people probably don't understand is that there was love between us and we did have good times. I mean, that's why people get involved. It begins as a whirlwind, it's a fairy tale, you're swept off your feet. And that was very much how it happened in our case. When the violence starts, it's almost as if you don't want to acknowledge it because how could people who love you that much hit you or harm you in any way? So you start, you begin the downplaying. And I just want to talk a little bit about the cycle of violence and how how I was addicted to William Hurd. It, you know, the, the cycle, there, there are basically three phases of the cycle of violence. The tension building period, the actual battering, and then the honeymoon. And the honeymoon is the cycle that hooks us in coming back. The apologies, the I will never do it again, I can't live without you, the gifts, the extravagant trips, the... the could you like i i think that's brilliant can you provide any examples of what you in on the honeymoon phase he would do blank blank and blank what are three best memories of what he would do well it was just exactly as i described there would be some sort of snap which which i was always blamed on me and um, I would rack my brain to try to remember what I did that had made him behave that way. This is what batterers do. They convince you that it's your fault and that if you would only act a certain way, you could stop it. And so I, I remember one day I, I was I was taking vitamins and I put them in piles and I didn't do it correctly. And so I didn't. And so that was a reason to have this violent reaction you know but then the letters the notes that he would write to me about i'm so sorry the phone calls the excessive phone calls this is before cell phones phone calls phone calls phone calls apologizing don't leave come back and all that stuff happened and um i I, i'm sure that anyone listening who has been in a similar situation can relate to these things you just you just think you're you just think you're going crazy after a while because you cannot quite make it stop but you are convinced that you you have the power because that's what he tells you i'm curious to know did he ever imply or say 
that somehow if you left, uh, did he ever threaten suicide if you left? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I very... can't live without you. I can't make it without you. Yeah. Uh-huh. I... And did he do the converse, which is nobody would want you the way I want you? Did you ever hear that? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. No, you know, and, and you're sort of convinced that the, the, this is the, the, uh, you know, you have the, you are, you are, you are in the unbelievable, remarkable couple status. You know, you are, you are for him and he is for you and you're the only people for each other. It's fate, it's kismet and all of that stuff. And so therefore don't mess it up. It's the love of your life. And I did, I, I do admit, I did love him very much. And I thought that that love, which was, who knows what it was, but um, it had power and you're convinced of that. And so it's very, very, very hard to get out of that. It's just very hard to get out of that and to realize that, you know, love, and then to also sort of be re-educated that love is not like that. That's not real love. And have you ever spoken with any of his subsequent relationships? Do you ever talk with Marley Batlin or anyone else who was involved with him? I have never, I have never talked to any of the, uh, of those women and not by choice. I just never have. But I did know, I did know that she also, that I did know after me, I mean, I was early on, I was before Marley Matlin. Uh, so, right. you know, I did, I did recall when she talked about this and I was quite thrilled that someone actually was also sort of backing up my story. I get you 100% Donna. And at the end, um, I, I don't want to test your time so much, but one thing, you've been so gracious and beautiful. And the the backstory that we have not discussed, like me, I have my parents, I'm 18, on the cover of Time. My parents like, said, I don't believe you. I blame you. It's all, all your fault. I would love to hear about your fortitude with your parents. And I only have one sibling, myself, my sister, and she was killed by a man who was driving, driving too fast in a car accident and she was my best supporter and when we think about you know you described Donna your fortitude as an I pronoun also your vision and your solitude and sitting with who you wanted to be and who you hoped your partner would be it's interesting because I was I was raised in a very loving home I had a pretty um, unordinary childhood or ordinary childhood, I guess you should, you should say. I told nobody that this was happening to me when it was happening. And I was isolated. I, I, we went from New York to Los Angeles where we lived for almost a year. And that was, I was very isolated. So I told no one. Actually, my parents found out by seeing me on CNN. Oh my God. Wow. And wow. So I don't recommend that. That was quite hard for them to call me. I'm sure. I just saw you on CNN and it said underneath your name that you are a survivor mm. of abuse. Um, so I didn't tell anyone. And this is also a part of the journey is the, um, the, the, I, I came out with my story in 2000, my book was published in 2016, about nine to 10 months before the um, Me Too movement resurged and exploded. So I was extremely fearful about publishing this book. I actually had a heart attack nine 
uh, months before it was, or maybe it was less wow. before it was published. Yeah, I was very stressed. I had to hire attorneys. My publisher had to hire attorneys. The book had to be vetted. I had to provide evidence to them uh, before they would go forward with publishing it. I had to get insurance. Um, I had to get liability insurance. And I was very nervous because I, I was going up against a big gun. Uh, he, he was very wealthy and very powerful, and I could have been sued. But I just they just kept telling me, tell the truth, tell the truth, just tell your truth. And that's what I focused on is telling my truth as I remembered it. And that's what I write in the book. This is my memory. This is exactly how I, I remember it to the best of my knowledge. And I write about the good times in there too. It's not all about the violence, but I did want to depict what it was like being inside the cycle. That was my, one of my goals in writing this book was to actually write what it was like being inside that cycle of violence and how hard it was to get out. You know, bookstores wouldn't carry it. And I think that, you know, the drama bookstore refused to carry it. I have no idea why, I, unless it's a Bill Hurt fan. Um, I, I have gotten, you know, I did get some backlash from it. Why tell your story now? They say that when you write a memoir, you will learn something about yourself, something that you never knew before. And I didn't really believe that until I wrote the book. And what I learned from the book is that what success means to me. Uh, and success means telling the truth. Success means making the most truthful, honest art that you can. It doesn't really matter if someone buys it or someone gives you lots of money for it. It just means that as an artist, to be a successful artist, you have to dig deep and you have to tell your truth. And if you're honest about that, you're a success. That's beautiful. What would you like your your the readers of your book, but also our listeners, what nugget of wisdom would you like them to take away from this, in addition to what you just said, actually? I am, re I am always reminded to welcome everything that happens to you, no matter how good or bad, and use it to your advantage by moving through it and getting through it in your own time. And I think that people have the strength to do that. The thing that's difficult is coming to terms with what's happened, what's actually happened to you. But your process of disclosure can take forever. It can take hours, minutes, whatever you need to do. It's your story. Embrace your own story. Tell it if you want to. Don't tell it. Keep it inside. That's also fine. But just remember that your narrative is important and you are important. Um, thanks so much, Anna. And my, 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 my last question is, like all three of us on this podcast, we were 30 years older than the next teens and 20s. And I le literally lectured eight, hour, eight hours ago to the teens. And they were listening to my story, Donna, and my journey. And I think... What would you ask of the next 18 to 22 year olds to like feel confident in their own voice and go forward in confidence? 
they're going to listen to our podcast. What would you not just I would say say they're not just survivors; they're supporters too. Yes, they're supporters. Um, I would say that education is very important, and the only way that I really got through my own journey was by educating myself about what violence is all about, what the cycle of violence is. And I think that self-education is very important. There are things that, there are warning signs in life. Trust your gut. Don't um, get involved with, you know, be wary of people who seem to be obsessed with you. Uh, It's very flattering to have a lot of attention, but there might be something behind that. And just read about domestic violence and the cycle of violence and the power and control wheel and educate yourself on that because I knew nothing about that. And I was very young when this happened to me. I was 24. And I would would say um, learn and read and, and talk and listen to people. Talk to your friends about what you're feeling and what you're experiencing. See if they have similar issues. Don't keep things inside. Again, your narrative, your story is important. Don't be afraid to tell it. So we're so grateful to to Donna, to you for joining us today. And we're so grateful also to the folks who joined us in listening to this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. Stories. And if you need support but don't know where to find it, visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources and how to access our legal support hotline. You can also help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. Tell your friends about it. That, that also helps us continue this work. Post it on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. So thank you to them and thank you to you listeners for being present today. And remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. Thank you so much, Claire. And together we honor Donna for your story, your narrative, and your journeyship for our survivor listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Of course. And for all of our listeners, together we grow stronger. Please tune in to another episode of Dear Katie. We will view this next week and stay tuned.